When I first dove into trying to understand my son's cancer diagnosis and diet came up, an area that uh, I was really intrigued with were the blue zones. So as it's played out, I've reached out to Dr. Bill Schindler, who has a uh, completely different perspective and experience on ancestral diets, blue zones, and so much more. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a blue zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. Dr. Bill Schindler, so excited uh, to be visiting with you, my friend. I have absolutely loved your work. Uh, and for somebody that has had as much exposure as you have, going into having your own restaurants, bakery, it's, it, I just think that's so, so neat, brother. You're putting in that groundwork. But uh, if you don't care, give us, a, give us your introduction. And uh, I really want to dive into that ancestral diet because I think that's a hot topic, but what does that mean? Sure. So <clears throat> I'm an archaeologist, anthropologist by training. I taught at the college level as a professor for 20 years. Uh, food and the technologies surrounding food, especially in our ancestral dietary past, have been the focus of my work for, for, for decades. Um, but right now, I'm no longer teaching at college. I'm no longer a college professor. My wife and I and our entire family uh, own a restaurant called the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. And it is associated with a nonprofit that we started called the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is uh, where we, do, we continue to do research. We continue to teach uh, all sorts of classes. We continue to speak and do podcasts like this. I wrote a book called Eat Like a Human. So all of the, um, the research and uh, teaching and outreach is funneled through the nonprofit. But everything that we learn is put into practice in our restaurant called the Modern Sun Age Kitchen. And, and a quick sort of overview of what that is. Um, we wanted to create the restaurant that we couldn't find that we wanted to bring our family to. Like we wanted to literally be able to take, get, make a restaurant where we could bring our family and feel good about our kids ordering anything off the menu. So we're, we, we do dip our toes into some crazy things like we have some stuff made out of insects and, and other things. But the majority of, of what we do is we take, create familiar food in the most nourishing way possible. And we do it 100% from scratch. There's no two ingredients put together outside of our walls. So we can apply all those traditional and ancestral approaches to food that make it as nutrient dense, bioavailable and safe as possible. We can do that in house. We make all of our cheese, we butcher nose to tail, uh, long wild fermented sourdough and, and the list goes, goes on and on. So one thing that I have found extremely difficult is trying to apply the things that we have learned. So I've got four kids. Oldest was the one that had stage four cancer. And so I want them to eat a certain way. And it is extremely difficult. Now, I do own a farmer's market where we source as much as we possibly can uh, as local and through the practices that I, I feel like we should be doing. But going out and eating at somewhere like you have is an anomaly. It, it is. And creating that food 
at on a commercial level. I know listen, we're not huge, but but we do service the community and uh, we do make a lot of food. First of all, my wife and I have no, you know, her background is in special ed. My background is in archaeology and anthropology. We have no business background whatsoever. We've never, neither of us have taken a business class ever in our lives. And I'm thankful because on paper, this shouldn't work. Like if, 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 if somebody came to, if we came to each other and said, this is what I want to do. And we're like, hey, I got this business background. This isn't going to work. We would have never done it. Um, it part of it was launched and uh, during COVID, which, you know, there's a lot of, Terrible things that happened during COVID, but a lot of opportunities happened during COVID as well. And as a result of it, and, and this is one of them, uh, but it shouldn't make sense. The cool thing about what we're doing is a couple of very cool things. One of them, it's very rewarding, incredibly rewarding. But we also, since all the value add is happening in our building, like completely in-house, we get to put our money into people. Like we're not, we're not using that money to buy you know, almost already finished food that's coming off of the Cisco truck that, you know, we're paying for them to pay their employees to make it. We're dealing directly with farmers. We're dealing directly with uh, people that are bringing food to us or what have you. And so our food costs are actually going down. And we have the opportunity to buy higher quality ingredients, interact directly with farmers, put money directly into the pockets of farmers, and then uh, pay our team to create that food. The other benefit of that, in addition to all the nourishing benefits and all the other, you know, having control over the process to make sure that the food is the highest quality possible. What's also awesome is that our team understands what they're doing. Like they're not just microwaving something or just throwing something in a skillet to reheat it. They're actually making food from scratch. They understand the process and our retention is awesome because they're, they're actually doing something and doing something meaningful. And it, it's really, really cool. Uh, that is so fascinating. Uh, the, I, we're, I want us to definitely dive more into how do we build community and build this resilient food system because you're you're doing it. Like you are doing uh, this sowing prosperity that we're after. But on the ancestral sure. diet, to kind of come up with that menu and, and the, the things that you apply, how did you pick apart? Because if you look at paleo and keto and carnivore, vegan, you get all of this different conflicting information out there. How do we know what an ancestral diet is? Well, one of the things that we know, so there, there's a lot of information and I'll put on the archaeology hat for a minute here. There's a lot of, believe it or not, even though we're talking about diets that are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and in some cases, millions of years old, there are some things we can absolutely tell. Um, and, and, and get enough information to make some really incredible um, interpretations about what diets were like in the past. So we have really solid dating techniques. We have uh, wonderful ways to take anything from fossilized poop and tell what somebody's last meal was to um, look at uh, the matrix of bones and understand uh, in a more general sense what, uh, what kind of diet dominated what kind of foods dominated their diets over, over their lifespan. We can look at dental records, look at teeth, and, and, and tell a lot from that. We can, in, in some cases, like, for example, Utsi, the Iceman, we can find the stomach, literally the stomach contents, uh, depending on preservation, uh, and tell what somebody's literally last meal was. Lots of things we can tell. We can look at uh, tools and tell 
what kind, if, if it's a ground stone tool, literally pull thousands and thousands of year old starch grains out of the matrix of those, of those of the little pockets in the, in the ground stone tools, tell what they were processing. We can pull blood residue off of stone knives and tell what animal they were literally cutting into. So there's a lot, there's a lot of information in there that we can tell, um, but there's also a lot of gaps. So one of the things that I, I wish was a little more prevalent in the dialogue about ancestral diets is that there's a ton we don't know, like literally a ton we don't know. Um, and, and I, I, I want to make sure we have room for, for that in the conversations. The other thing that I wish, uh, and I'm, I'm thankful I have the time with you here to sort of break this apart a little, a little bit further. One of the things that needs to be a little more, a little less dogmatic or, and a little more open is the one thing about our dietary past that is constant is change and diversity, right? There's no such thing as the ancestral diet, right? First of all, we're talking about millions of years worth of diversity happening. You know, once we hit 2 million years and our ancestors start spreading in different continents, different resources, different you know, environments, we're, tons of different diversity uh, in our diet. So there's no, there's no ancestral diet. But there are some things kind of like that Western, uh, Western price approach where there are some pockets of things, these, these dietary sort of needs that we as humans have that get filled in different, in different places in the world in different time periods by, through different resources. The thing for me that is sort of the basis of all of my research, the basis for everything we make at the restaurant here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, the basis for the research that, that we're continuing to do is I think it's very important to this conversation is the inadequacy of the human digestive tract compared to any other animal on the planet. And the reason I bring that up is because our relationship with food as humans is completely different than any other animal on the planet. Forget, take domesticated animals aside for a second. Let's talk about the difference between wild, any other wild animal and, and humans. Other wild animals are biologically designed to consume particular diets, right? And they have the digestive tract for it. They have the, the, the dentition required for it. They have the behavior patterns set up so that they eat a certain type of food and that food goes through the digestive tract. It's safe, it's nourishing, it's bioavailable, it's nutrient dense, and they get and they nourish their bodies with that raw material. Humans are different. When we started making tools three and a half million years ago, we started to process food before it went into our mouths, which is wonderful. It actually allowed everything from, and these are simple technologies, but powerful. Development of stone tool technology, development of hunting, development of fire, development of fermentation, development of nishtamalization and drying and sprouting and all these different things that we've done over, over millennia, or even longer than that, that allow us as humans to eat foods and introduce them into our diets that we, have, that we are biologically not designed to eat. Like our digestive tract can't handle it. And if it can handle it, it's not handling it in the most efficient way. What we have, as humans have done and our ancestors have done is create technologies that allowed us to access foods we're not designed to eat, process them to make them safe, process them to make them nutrient dense, and process them to allow the nutrients inside of them to be absorbed and utilized by our inefficient digestive tract. And it's because we've done that that we supported massive body and brain growth. So here we are as modern-day homo sapiens with these huge brains and these huge bodies with this incredibly inefficient digestive tract that not only didn't grow, it actually shrunk in relation to our bodies and, and shrunk in relation to our um, increased nutritional needs. And 
now we're facing the modern industrial food system, which isn't processing food for positive reasons, you know, for positive things. It's, it's, it's processing them for, for negative things. So to me, when we as, as humans look at our relationship with our environment, look at our relationship with our food, the thing that we need to realize is that almost every food that we put into our mouths has to be altered in some way to make it as safe and nourishing as it can possibly be. Um, and and that's, that's the story of, of and that, that's the value of what's happening, that, of what we can do in our kitchen. We don't cook food just to make it look and smell a certain way or taste a certain way. We cook food to make it more nourishing. It, it, really cool. Um, on, on my understanding through diet, I have gone through the cancer lens primarily. That's been my, it, my approach to absolutely everything. The first book I read was The China Study, right? Scared me to death, right? <coughs> we cut out meat. We cut out dairy. It was like, ah, this is going to fuel Landers cancer, and, like, it has to go away. Uh, recently visited with uh, Thomas Seafried, and, you know, he has a completely different view mm -hmm. on that. So, ancestrally speaking, where does meat fall in to uh, health and optimization? So that's a fantastic question, and it's a complicated one, uh, but I'll, I'll give you a, a brief overview, at least the way I interpret it, and then we can dive deeper in anything that you like. The, let me preface this by saying, and I just wrote a blog post about this on Monday. The thing that dominates any conversation about diet and health today is uh, polarization. Right. Everybody, every, everybody who's an influencer, everybody who's got a loud voice is trying to build an audience and they're building these audiences in many cases on clickbait and, you know, ostracizing other people and saying my way is the one way. And, and because our attention spans are so, so short as, as a, an audience that it has to be distilled down to one or two things. You know, this is it. It's all meat, or it's all vegetables, or it's all this, or it's no dairy. Or it's, and the reality is we are complicated beings. Right? Humans are complicated in the way that uh, we eat, not only for, in nutritional uh, and health terms, but also because to nourish ourselves, it's not just meeting biological requirements. We need to also meet our emotional needs and our cultural needs, and for some people, our religious needs or what have you. Or all of us are working in different um, different traditions, different places in the world. We're, de we're dealing with different socioeconomic status and access to resources. So it's an incredibly complicated thing. And to distill something so complex as human food relationship down to this is the one thing you need to do and everybody else is wrong uh, is, is ridiculous. So um, I'll, say, I'll say that at first. But our, our relationship with food started with plants and insects, right? So we didn't introduce, you know, if you go back 5 million years ago, 7 million years ago, when we first stood upright, uh, we had no tools. So everything that we, all the food we got from our environment, we accessed with our fingers, with our teeth, with our muscles or, or whatever. And they were eating hyper-seasonally, hyper-locally, um, a, a limited amount of fruits and vegetables that were uh, safe enough to consume without processing, that were available in their area in that season. And, and that's, it's a very limited amount of food, believe it or not. So if you, if you think about, you know, I get people all the time that will walk into a grocery store 
and, and be pushing their cart in the produce section and, and, and envision themselves as a hunter-gatherer. Right? This, is, this is what it must have been like. You know, all these plants. No, that, that's not, first of all, we have no seasons in our grocery store. We've, we've taken away, you know, geographic limitations. So you're getting food from all over the world. You're getting lemons every, every month out of the year. It's, it's nothing like if somebody else has picked it for you. Th that's not the uh, reality of what a hunter-gatherer lifestyle was like five thousand you know five million years ago the one thing that was available all the time that required no processing at all and was the most nutrient-dense bioavailable part of their diet was insects and i know this is a hot topic right now unfortunately insect consumption has been politicized to the point where you know it, it's it's ridiculous but it was the reality it was the most nutrient-dense bioavailable part of our ancestors diet until they started creating tools at three and, a, and I know some of these numbers are really hard for some people to fathom because they're so large. But at about three and a half million years ago, um, we started creating tools, and those first tools were confident were used for butcher, butchering, butchering scavenged animals on the savanna. So animals that had been killed by another predator uh, that still had a bunch of flesh and meat hanging on them. You know, we could go. Our ancestors could go out with these sharp, razor sharp stone tools, hack off huge pieces of meat, and bring them back to, to camp. Uh, when we introduce meat into our diet at three and a half million years ago, we don't see a lot of biological changes happening right away. We don't see a huge jump in brain size, a huge jump in body size. Part of this is because I'm not, none of us are confident how much of an impact this made on their diet. Were they, were they now eating meat every day or was it once every three months when they happened upon such a thing? So we don't know necessarily the quantity and uh, reliability of, of the introduction of meat into their diets. But we know, they were, we know they were eating meat. The biggest change happens at 2 million years ago when we start hunting. When we, at least two things happen at 2 million years ago. We, start, uh, we have the ability now to cook over fire so we can cook our food, uh, which is a, a, an immensely important processing technology. And uh, secondly, we start hunting. And the difference between scavenging, which they were doing for a million and a half years prior to this, and hunting is that when you're scavenging, you're eating the stuff that's left over from another animal's kill. And the uh, predators will always eat the blood, the fat, and the organs first, which is the most nutrient-dense bioavailable part of an animal. And they'll often leave flesh behind that meat that they either uh, leave temporarily and come back to or just completely leave, which is what our meat food source was at 2 million years ago, we become the predators. We're the apex predators. We're, we are taking animals down at will. We have first access to any part of that animal, including the most nutrient dense bioavailable parts the blood, the fat and the organs. So one of the perspective changes I would love to propose to people is not to think, Oh, when did we start eating meat in the past? I want, I would love people to start thinking, when did we start eating animals in the past? when we start eating the entire animal nose to tail, introducing all of that into our diets, because that's when we see the largest jump in body and brain size we ever had in our evolutionary past. And then from that point forward, we, all those things we were doing earlier, uh, we got better at, you know, better hunting, better processing of plants and, and those sorts of things. There are groups of people in the past and still today that eat almost none or very little vegetables, like the Inuit, for example. Uh, but for most of, uh, at least from what we can tell from the archaeological record, plants were pervasive in our diets. I don't believe plants were the um, mainstay of our diets. I don't believe, uh, you know, they were focused 
heavily on plants, but we did eat plants. So my, my perspective on it is this, eating certain plants processed in the right way is uh, ancestrally consistent you know, for, for, for humans. I also believe that eating animals, not meat, animals, all of the animal, including the meat, is incredibly ancestrally appropriate. And in fact, that was the thing that supported massive body and brain growth from a nutritional perspective that allowed us to actually become human. So any, you know, an, an entirely plant-based diet is on one end of the fringe and entirely, you know, meat or animal-based diet is on the other side of the fringe. The reality of what our species has dealt with for uh, our species for 300,000 years, our, our genus, you know, humans for, for millions of years has been a combination of both, but it's been incredibly thoughtful and technology played a very large role in, in how we dealt with those resources. The carnivore has definitely been something that's got my attention, especially lately, uh, going from the extreme of, of I thought me, I literally thought meat caused cancer. Like uh, I, I bought it. Uh, I bought into it. But uh, we recently visited with, the, you know, Dr. Anthony Chafee. I know that you and him uh, are buddies. Uh, and I feel like he's put out so much value in maybe – Maybe not necessarily the the carnivore push, but just that hey, meat's not doing all these horrible things. Animal is not doing all these horrible things. Now, you know he's not as pro organ and stuff as as I am. But what you're saying is very much in line with like what Sally uh, Fallon Morell says in her approach of of having this combination. But in your book, you and I quote: "Plants should scare the hell out of you." <laughs> Go into that. Absolutely. But for, let me say very quickly first, I love everything that Anthony Chafee does. Uh, we're good friends. I love his approach. And I will tell you, and he's the person I pause at every time I start saying that vegetables are ancestrally appropriate because I don't know how many years it's been since he's put a vegetable in his mouth. He is so careful that I, I, I was going to say intentionally or unintentionally, I don't even think there's been an unintentional vegetable that reached his mouth. And the, the guy is literally the poster child for health. Not only does he look healthy, but his whole demeanor, I mean, just his smile, his radiance, I mean, all of it is healthy and he cares. And, and so you know, he, he literally, when I was just doing that last five minutes worth of talk, I, he, was, he was in the back of my mind. Um, I, I will say, if I had to choose a diet that was either all animal or all plant, it would obviously be an all animal diet. I mean, there, 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 there's no, from, from a lot of different reasons. Uh, but like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of different reasons that humans eat food and a lot of different needs that we have. Some of those are biological. Many of those are emotional or cultural or, or, or otherwise. And the reality of the conversations I think we should be having just like this one here is, okay, Let's say the best diet ever is is full carnivore. I, I don't believe that it is. I believe it's one of the best things we can do. Um, but from a nutritional safety health perspective, let's say for a moment that is the case. Um, and, and, and maybe it is. People eat vegetables. Like they're, they're in our world. So the perspective, the, the approach that, that I have and my wife and I have and our family has and, and we have at the restaurant here is 
if you're going to eat vegetables, there's, these are the safest ones to eat, or this is the best way to process those vegetables to make them as safe or as nourishing as possible. And I, I really think that's this, the conversation we should be having now because there's a whole lot of people who in their lifetime are never going to stop eating X, Y, and Z. Um, and maybe the step that we can take with them now is this is, this is what you, you can do. So as far as the plants that scare the hell out of you, please, that, that, that comes from, you know, I, I started for, I've been hunting since I was about eight. I started foraging when I was 10 years old, and that's, now I'm 50 now, so that was 40, 40 years of foraging, and 30 of those I've been running foraging tours all over the world. And uh, I used to start, everybody would come, especially you know, 30, 20 years ago, they'd come to the class really, really, really scared, like super scared of foraging. Like, I've heard of it, I kind of want to dip my toes into it, but you know, I know these plants are going to kill me, so I'm really scared to do it. And in response to that, I, I would start every foraging tour off saying, listen, there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, mushrooms, you know, be afraid. Like there's mushrooms that if you pick the wrong one, you're either going to die the next day or your liver's going to shut down and you're going to be, you know, dealing with this the rest of your life. I wish you were dead. Uh, but other plants, ah, there's a couple out here that are really dangerous. But for the most part, you know, if we, if we, if we identify properly and do this, then there's, there's nothing to worry about. And then... I really started to learn more about things like lectins and phytates and oxalates and all the other things that are problematic in plants that to me are in so much more dangerous than the mushrooms that I used to make people scared about. And this is why. I, I actually gave a foraging tour to a, to a local school a couple of days ago and, and I told them this. I said, look, mushrooms aren't that dangerous. You know, mushroom, because I'll tell you right now, if we all went outside right now and I picked this mushroom and you were in front of me, and you saw me eat this mushroom, and then you saw me in intense pain for the next 12 hours, and then all my organs shut down and I died, none of you would ever touch that mushroom again. Like, you wouldn't. Like, it was dangerous to me. It's incredibly safe to you guys because you're never going to touch it. Like, you, you know, you're going to be deathly afraid of it. I said, the, the, the plants that should really scare the hell out of us, the most dangerous plants to me are the ones that cause issues because they're in our diets day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And then five years later, we start coming up, coming down with all these symptoms. And we'll, we'll, it's so difficult for our minds to go to this thing that's been in our diet for five years. Oh, it can't be that. I've been eating it for five years. Well, that's, that's actually the issue, right? That, that's the problem. It's, the, it's because we've been eating it consistently for five years or however long that it's, it's built up in our body and, and caused issues. Plants should scare the hell out of us because they can cause problems in all sorts of different ways. The ones that I think are most dangerous are the ones like high oxalate containing plants that it's so difficult for us to make that association. Now here's the really cool thing if you look at this from an ancestral perspective. Forget the industrial revolution for a moment. I'm sorry, the agricultural revolution. Everything prior to 10 or 12,000 years ago, which is the majority of time that we've been on this planet, right? Um, my background is in, in technologies, like ancient technologies. Almost every single technology created to include animals in our diets have to do with overcoming our physical limitations and getting that animal, right? So um, things like atlatls and spears and boomerangs and throwing sticks and traps and fishing nets and fishing hooks and all those things that allow us to catch these really fast animals that are flying or swimming or running or whatever they are, that's almost all the technologies that we need to get an animal into our diet is focused on capturing that animal. Once we have that animal, 
All you got to do is have a sharp edge and cut it open. I mean, that's it, right? Sharp edge and cut it open. You can cook it. In some cases, that helps. Or especially in terms of, of blood, fat, and organs. You don't even have to cook them. I mean, they're incredibly bioavailable in the state that they are. And it's the most nutrient-dense foods we've ever had are right there. Plants are different. Again, forget, the, forget farming, forget the agriculture revolution. Everything before that, as collective foragers, the, the tools that almost all the tools that we've created that allow us to include plants in our diet are not about getting that plant. I mean, it's incredibly easy to get the plant. I mean, you have a digging stick, maybe, that, that's it. But you're picking berries, you're picking leaves, you're pulling stalks out of the, whatever. Um, which, once you've got it, you have an incredibly inefficient food for our digestive tracts. Right. Number one, all plants have some level of toxin in them. So many of them we have actually have to detoxify. So there's a ton of technologies we've developed to detoxify plants and make them safe to eat. And even though there are nutrients in plants, which there are, in many cases, those nutrients are either um, impossible for our body to access or make use of, or even the ones that we can, it takes a lot of work for our bodies, our, our digestive tract to access those nutrients. So almost all of the technologies surrounding including plants in our diet have to do with the processing, making those plants safe to eat and or making the nutrients in those plants available to our bodies. And I, it's the same thing now. Even though we've dumbed down some of, the, some of the toxins and unfortunately some of the nutrition in plants and we've continued to domesticate them uh, through selective pressure over time, the things in the grocery store, it is not. I used to walk in the grocery store with my cart and look at the plant section and say, oh my gosh, this is where real health begins. If some of these plants are good, more of them must be better. And I turn my brain off, which is a very dangerous thing to do, and then just start loading my cart with all these vegetables. And it actually got me into a lot of trouble with oxalates. So um, one example you gave in the book was uh, the persimmon. So here in Arkansas, everybody knows what persimmons are. And that is such a good you know, picture for experiencing what you're talking about with these plant compounds. Do you care to go through that? Yeah, sure. And, and I'll, I'll give you a quick – there's a great book by Tom Elpel uh, called Botany in a Day. And I love this book because it, you can literally read this book in one day. And the way – I haven't read it in – I probably read it 20 years ago. But the way that he outlines uh, just some basic plant biology in, in this short period of time is very, very powerful for looking at just plants and plant – so what I'm saying here wasn't in that book. But it, I, I, want, I, I hope to be able to do the same sort of thing here uh, with uh, looking at plant toxins. One thing we need to understand is that – First of all, plants don't move, right? This is the same thing that Anthony Chafee would say. Plants can't move and they need to defend themselves. Some plants do create some physical defense mechanisms like thorns or bark, for example. Uh, but the reality is plants are engaged in chemical warfare with the outside world all the time. Now, <clears throat> the production of – plants aren't evil. Plants are not trying – are not setting out to kill you. What they're trying to do is literally protect themselves. And it is – biologically expensive for them to create these these secondary compounds these toxins uh so it, it, they serve a purpose it's not that oh i'm just going to be i'm just going to be a mean plant and make this sort of toxin well it takes a lot of work for them to actually create those toxins so they they serve some sort of uh evolutionary purpose and what the plants are all the, all, the only thing the plants are trying to do just like every other species on this planet is uh, the basics of, of what happens in evolution. We need, a, a species needs to produce um, 
uh, offspring that can then produce offspring. Right? That's it. That's the only thing that, that, that needs to happen for a species to survive. And when that doesn't happen, a species goes extinct. So the plants are trying to reproduce and reproduce viable offspring. They, and so they put a lot of chemical um, pressure, right? a, lot of, a lot of chemical defenses into making sure that they reach maturation to the point where they can produce seeds. And those seeds, in whatever form they come, are heavily defended through chemical means to make sure that they stay safe until they can you know, sprout and, and, and create a new life as well. So if you, think, if you think of those terms and you look at a plant in general, now, first off, again, I've been foraging for 40 years. I've been teaching foraging classes for 30 years. We never, I, I, I never say never or always in the foraging world because you're always going to be wrong at, at, at some point. Um, so I don't want to make blanket statements, but there are some generalizations we can at least consider for this conversation. One of them is, and it has a lot to do with toxins, a plant that puts a lot of effort into um, building an energy resource in the ground, we call them under, underground storage organs, roots, corms, tubers, think potatoes, for example. You know, what happens is they spend all spring and summer and early fall engaged in photosynthesis, getting, you know, creating all this energy, storing it in the form of carbohydrates. So when the top of the plant dies, it lives off those carbohydrates, right, in the an energy resource in the winter until they sprout, create leaves, engage in photosynthesis again and start that process all over again. You can imagine in a plant like that, that uh, that root is incredibly important. And it's, and it's no surprise that they're almost always very heavily uh, defended by chemicals. In fact, the most dangerous and toxic part of, of many of them happens in the skins because those skins are the barrier between this important part of the plant and fungus and insects and disease and all sorts of predation. So uh, no matter, even if the potato skins, for example, were more nutritious than the inside, which they're not, but let's even pretend they were, like I was told in the 70s, it's not worth it to, to, to deal with those toxins. Like we, I will never eat a potato the rest of my life that's not peeled. I mean, it's that big of a deal. It's another story for another time, but just you know, to give that idea. Roots and stems and, I'm sorry, not roots, stems and leaves and those sorts of things uh, can vary in toxin load. Uh, some are incredibly safe. Some of them are incredibly uh, poisonous uh, through different seasons, through the plants, whatever. But what I really want to focus on is the rest of the plant. The, the, the flower, the flower, you know, the plants put a lot of effort into creating these secondary compounds, we, uh, we call them allelochemicals, to not repel from the flower, in fact, to attract, especially with, with um, uh, plants that require pollen, uh, insect pollinators or, or other kinds of pollinators. So what, what, you, what you see mostly with flowers is a beautiful flower that looks super pretty and smells super pretty and tastes super good and doesn't have any uh, or very little toxins in it because the role of the flower is to attract. That's part of the reproductive process of, of, of many plants. So typically flowers are very safe to eat. But then we get to the production of the fruit. So you have this fruit produced, and in the case of the persimmon, um, you know, the, 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 role, the, the fruit serves a role. A fruit is a delivery mechanism for the seeds, and the seeds are the babies of the plant. So what typically happens uh, with fruits is that a fruit starts off toxic. Like a fruit starts off because what, what, as that fruit is developing and those seeds are maturing, they want to keep those seeds safe 
um, until the seeds are mature and ready to get spread. It doesn't serve the, the, the plant uh, very well if you have a, an animal come eat a fruit full of immature seeds and then bring it somewhere and deposit those seeds in a pile of manure somewhere if they're immature. So something like a persimmon is toxic until those seeds are mature and then the toxin is shut off they smell great, they taste great, there's little or no toxins in them whatsoever, and they're, they're working to attract animals to come and eat that fruit and then deposit the seeds somewhere else. So immature fruits, especially the skins of immature fruits, are often, uh, often toxic. And that goes for, uh, I, just, I wrote a blog on this a few uh, about a month ago, that goes for fruits in the grocery store. I mean, an immature banana, I know people like an immature banana because um, it doesn't have as many sugars in it and, and, and whatnot, but an immature banana actually has toxins in it that we need to be aware of, especially if we're eating a lot of them. So fruits, mature fruits are often uh, great uh, as far as toxin loads are concerned, but the seeds, seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes are the babies of plants. They are chemically defended very, very heavily. And in order to, for us humans to eat them safely and efficiently, efficiently get nutrition from it, we have to do things to them. And, we, and in many cases, we just need to stay the heck away from them. So here's another great example for you from a, another plant. We're, we're, you're in Arkansas, right? Yep. Okay, so he, here's another uh, great example of, of uh, dangerous seeds. So also seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes, seeds, grains, and legumes, and to some cases nuts, but at least in the other cases, they're physically and chemically designed in many cases to withstand the digestive tract of animals. I mean, their job, is, their role is to go into the mouth of an animal and come out the other end in a pile of manure somewhere to make a new plant. Some seeds, and, and, and many of us know this, are actually require going through the digestive tract of an animal in order for it to be able to germinate at some point in the future. They look like torpedoes in many cases because they're supposed to shoot right through us and come out the other end. I mean, so everything about that makes a lot of sense. Here's an example of how dangerous certain seeds are. So one of my favorites, so I love persimmons when they're ripe and I love pawpaws. Do you have pawpaws? Okay. We do. Pawpaws, George Washington's favorite fruit, our favorite dessert on the planet. He loved chilled pawpaws. I love pawpaws. If you've never heard of or seen a pawpaw, it's actually related to a banana, but indigenous to North America. It's, it's crazy. They taste delicious when they're ripe. Um, the seeds have a powerful neurotoxin. And, uh, and I actually, what I, what I would do every year with pawpaws for years is I'd go collect bags and bags full of pawpaws and I'd put them through a, a food mill, kind of like I'm making tomato sauce, and I'd get all the pulp out, and I'd make ice cream from it, do all these other things, and I, the leftover stuff I would freeze. Well, a few years ago, I took some out uh, of the freezer, some of the, this pulp from, from the pawpaws, and I dehydrated it to make like a fruit leather. And it hit it, this one, this had been in the freezer for like two years. Um, but after the fruit leather was made, I took a little piece the size of my, my pinky nail. I had, a, I had a little bite, and my son was there. He's like, have a little bite. I'm like, sure. And take bite. We've been eating pawpaws for like 20 years. Um, anyhow, about an hour and a half later, both of us were in the bathroom and couldn't leave for hours. Our heads felt like they were about to split open, vomiting, diarrhea, the worst I've ever had in my life. Both of us. It was. In, thank God we had more than one bathroom. And it lasted for hours. And then it sort of went away, and that was the end of it. Like, oh, my God, what the hell happened to us? And then when I started to dive into it, this it, it, what I had probably done was nicked one of these seeds when I was putting it through the food mill. I probably concentrated it when I was dehydrating it. 
but it was insane, the reaction from that. And that was just from a pawpaw. I mean, typically when I eat a pawpaw, I take it, you know, I even have put the seeds in my mouth and I spit the seeds out, you know, um, and it's, it, it was bad. But it really just reinforced that here's this amazingly delicious fruit, incredibly safe to eat, and it's got this poison powerhouse on the, on the inside of it. Well, that's terrifying. Um, so <laughs> thank you for that. Um, one other thing that terrified me on the meat again um, was Blue Zones. And I know with your experience and traveling, you've been to, to these places. Can you, can you lay out kind of where that's off base and where it's maybe right uh, and, and just kind of from your experience on the ancestral aspects and just Blue Zones in general? Because the more I get into it, the more I disagree with it. But I'm also not an, not traveled to these places. So uh, what's your experience? I certainly haven't been to all of them. Um, and I don't want to suggest that I even know a, a, a ton about the diets of, of some of the Blue Zones. I mean, I have, I have certainly ideas and thoughts about it. But I don't, I don't want to speak about something I don't, um, excuse me, specifically know about. What I can tell you is that we just uh, returned from Sardinia in Italy, which is... And we were actually, we spent time doing research in the village of Villa Grande, which was, is the heart of the first blue zone ever identified. The reality of, at least in this particular case, of, um, of what we experienced there was a lot of what they're saying in, you know, with this blue zone sort of mantra right now is true. Like, number one, they're, the people there are living to incredibly old ages. And what's great about it, what's I think really significant about it, is that it's not like saying somebody in America is living, you know, living to 103 years old. Because for most of us, unfortunately, in the modern Western world, the last 20, 30, 40 years of our life, we're dying, right? The, these people are living to these incredibly old ages. So, so it's significant that they're reaching these numbers and reaching them, large percentages of the population are reaching these high numbers, but they're like incredible. Their minds are there, their bodies are there. I mean, we saw people over 100 years old walking up and down mountains. I mean, it, it, it was unbelievable. Um, so that part's true. Uh, some of the other things about, uh, I just said watch some of that Netflix documentary, uh, so I'm referring to this. Some of the other things they said about life in these places seems to be very true as well. Like people are very nice. They visit with one another. You know, they're always moving around and exercising. And all, that is, you know, they're eating together. Those things seem to be very true and very significant as well. The part that's off base is what they're actually eating. You know, what, what comprises their diets. And this is a very, now I don't know if it was done on purpose. I assume it was. I mean, that they built this argument on all these true things, right? All these people are living to these ages. They're in excellent shape. They're exercising all the time. They're really nice. They have, you know, all, multiple generations in the same house. All these things are very, very true. And then once you've, once you trust them, <laughs> they throw in the diet piece um, and say it's a very plant-based diet. It's not, at least in this particular case, it, it's not. In fact, it, what we experienced, and we, again, were in the heart of the areas that were studied for this. Um, and we weren't with, you know, the Anthony Chafees of, of this area. Like, it wasn't like we were, you know, going to a, an area and hand-selecting somebody who only eats meat and saying, hey, this is representative of, right? Um, we actually went there and we were 
staying with and working with a food historian that was uh, so incredibly proud of all of the food from Sardinia historically. So, you know, it wasn't, she wasn't just animal-based because she was animal-based. Um, the families we were with were full operating, multiple generation families we were with. And we were with shepherds. We were with amazing people. And what we experienced was this. It was the exact opposite of everything that they suggested in the books and in the Netflix, Netflix series. Uh, they ate something from an animal every single day. Now, I mean, every single day. But here were some things that I think are significant about the way that they uh, approached animals in their diet. That is absolutely different than, than the way many of us have access to. Number one, there were no links in their food chain. Like, none. The people, and, and part of, and when I say a village of Villa Grande, don't think like, you know, thatched huts and like 12 people, you know, standing around a cow. It, it wasn't like a village in the middle of nowhere, potentially, you know, in, in a very remote area. This was a proper city on the side of a mountain, right? Um, even with that, not city like New York City, but it, it was it was you know a good size. People were living in houses. They had <laughs> paved streets. They had school. I mean, all they um, everybody had their own orchard. Not at not, sometimes not at their house, but somewhere on the mountainside, they had a place where they grew their own food. And it wasn't like they grew tomatoes and then bought everything else in the grocery store. Like they. Everybody had olive trees. They had, you know, all, all the plants they did eat, they were growing themselves. And the animals that they ate, they raised themselves. So associated with these orchards, people had their own pigs. Uh, pigs were very, very heavily, heavily um, dominated the diet there. But they had goats. They had sheep. Um, some people had cows, but mostly it was goats, sheep, and pigs. And so when we sat down at a table to eat... There were no links. Like, there was nobody in between them and their food. They made all of their own cheese. They cured all, they butchered and cured all of their own meat. They, everything, they cured their own olives. So when we sat down and ate, everybody at that table had some vested interest in the food that was there and, 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 and played a part in it. In fact, the only food, I, I remember a couple of, of the memorable meals. There were a couple of instances, and I, and I mean multi-course huge meals, where every aspect of it was not only made from scratch, but was har grown and harvested and, uh, from scratch. Uh, we sat there, and the one thing at the table that somebody in that room didn't make themselves was the wine, and it was made by the uncle of the food historian that was, that was sitting with us. I mean, it was literally that close. All of the meals were like that, and it wasn't because we were there. This is a common thing. So the other... So they all made their own... Uh, all everybody we uh, were with all made their own cheese, all had their own pigs, killed those pigs, butchered those pigs, and 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 had you know had all 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 the results of that. They also ate in a very nose to tail fashion. Um, our, the first meal that we had was they, uh, they it was it was it was a sheep. They had it up. They had it like a half of this animal that was on the sort of rotisserie thing at their bar uh, on their outside barbecue and right behind it wrapped around it was was the intestines and 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 we, that that was the main part of the meal we ate the entirety of all that the the one of the reasons we were there was to study one of the most rudimentary forms of cheese making uh something called caillou de cabretto which is um they take so we went into the mountains to work with one of the shepherds they take a goat uh, an unweaned goat, which still has all the producing all the enzymes in their stomach to, to process the, the milk properly. Um, and 
in all mammals, when we digest milk properly, we're actually going through the same steps as a cheesemaker would do to, to make cheese. Cheesemakers replicate this biological process, including the way that humans do it. So this, this goat, we, we, would, we had it feed from its mother, and then we took the stomach out after you know, it, it was filled with all this milk, and all you do is hang it up. And about two weeks later, you come back, and it's cheese on the inside. I mean, incredibly strong, crazy, powerful, powerful cheese, but it's that. But here we have this goat. We ate literally every single piece of that goat except for the feet and the skin. I mean, and the gallbladder. Other than that, every part of every part of that goat uh, was eaten. Uh, not only did we eat the intestines, we ate the contents of the small intestines, which was was literally just fermented milk. Dairy. Really, it was a kind of cheese on the inside of it. Uh, we did squeeze out the contents of large intestines, but we ate that. We ate every organ. We ate the brain. We ate the meat. We ate every bit of it uh every bit of that animal it was unbelievable and so not only were they eating meat they were eating the entire animal the one thing i'll say uh before we move on but happy to dive deep in anything else is that one of the interesting things though was i said how one of my first questions was how often do you eat meat and they said oh once a week I've been with you guys for a week. We've eaten meat literally every day. Like, I don't understand. And to them, that term, eating meat referred to their big barbecue with the sheep on Sunday night that they spend all time, you know, preparing for in this big, huge thing. Um, eating meat, when I asked it, I don't know if something was lost in translation. I don't know what, but the the consistent, you know, charcuterie that we ate all the you know, cure salumi really that we ate all the time and, and and all these other smaller meals and smaller things didn't register as eating meat it was it was it, it was like me saying how often do you barbecue a sheep and and, and it would be like oh we, we, we do that on sundays so again i i think it was more deliberate than a loss in translation thing but it was really interesting that they reported verbally on this one thing but the reality of what was going on we didn't eat many vegetables at all uh, we did eat olives one day we had eggplant one day uh oh, t we had obviously there were tomatoes in in the diet um but really it was a lot of olive oil but it wasn't it was a very, it, lots of cheese, lots of homemade, incredible raw milk cheeses, but it was not a plant-heavy diet at all. I love it. I love the having the, you know, that first hand account to, to rely on. So, uh, you know, thank you for laying that out uh, in, in a way that's very easy to, to understand the, the progression. What do you think we do next? How do we apply this on, on these these communities is it open up restaurants like you are doing is it come participate in your classes is, is what what do we do next the that's a fantastic question and I, and I wish I had a direct answer for you but this is at least I'll tell you what our approach is because this is what's very important important to us the first thing that we need to do the number one thing that we need to do on an individual level a household level and on a community level is to reconnect with our food on every level possible. And for different people, that means different things. And the, the wonderful, I think, empowering part of that approach, is, aspect of that approach is that it isn't overwhelming because everybody can take that, you know, take a step to remove a link from your food chain has, you know, a huge snowball effect over time. Uh, so 
one of the one of the from an animal perspective, one of the things that I that I like to say is if you right now are buying chicken breasts from the grocery store, then then buy a whole chicken. It's a huge step. That's it's, then there's a lot of uh, amazing things that happen when you make that shift. If you're already buying a chicken from the grocery store, then go to the farmer's market and buy a chicken. If you're already doing that, then actually go to the farm and meet the farmer and see the chickens running around and have your kids see the chickens running around and have the farmer meet your kids and you meet the farmer's kids and you know that 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 is the food system that I have worked very hard to be a part of. And I think that's a food system that can actually help solve a lot of problems. So one is to reconnect, remove as many links in the food chain from your, your individual food chain as possible. The second thing is to learn about the food that you eat every day. One of the other stories that I tell quite often, it was a huge, um, huge light bulb moment for me was years ago, and when I really started to get into making everything from scratch and learning about how food is really made, I dedicated myself to the idea that I, that I was going to make Thanksgiving dinner entirely from scratch. And I did. It took me three months, and I made every bit of it. Every bit of that meal was made 100% from scratch, including like charcuterie boards that were laid out ahead of time. And I made salami, and I made cheese, and I made all the sourdough bread, and I made the bread to then break up and make the stuffing. I mean, every bit of it was made 100% from scratch. I cured my own olives. That had started earlier than three months before. But anyhow, I, everything was done 100% from scratch. Some of it was great. Some of it was terrible. Some of it was eaten. Some of it wasn't. But the entirety of that table was made, uh, even the wine on the table, because some of it started well before three months. Every part of that meal was made by my hands 100% from scratch. And I remember when we got up and everybody went to leave. And pe- listen, people were very polite. They were very polite. Some of it they loved, some of it they hated, but they ate it all. When they left, I was so proud of myself. I physically, physically ducked around the corner and patted myself on the back. And I felt so proud. Then I woke up the next day and I was like, I I didn't do anything. Like, I did something. It was very, very cool. I can talk about it now, however many years later. But I didn't make a difference in the health, a real, lasting, solid impact on the health of everybody around that table. All of those months of work, and it was one meal, um, and that was it. And I decided, I'm a father. Like, I have to nourish my family. I'm not going to start now preparing for next year's Thanksgiving. What I need to do is figure out the foods that my family eats every single day or multiple times a week, week after week, month after month, year after year. And if I can nail those things down, learn how they're made, start to make them in the most most nourishing way possible, and continue to do that, then that's what's going to make an impact on my family's health. So... That was a really powerful moment for me and my suggestion to everybody that's listening is if you are dedicated to really nourishing yourself and your family um, and supporting a food system that is really, really uh, a powerful food system that's going to make a difference into the future, then take the foods that you eat every day or every week or all the time and, and don't pretend. Don't be like, oh, well, it's, it's really this one. It's really mac and cheese. Like whatever it is that your really family really eats all the time, pizza, whatever it is, and learn to make that entirely from scratch. And I know that sounds like, oh, my God, like I don't even know how to boil water. Like do it. It's worth it. And it's going to take less work than making the entire Thanksgiving dinner. But just the act of getting into the kitchen, using your hands, sourcing the raw ingredients, looking at how they change and, and how you can manipulate them in your kitchen to make the, whatever it is, um, whether it's the pasta or making the cheese or whatever, make that entire meal from scratch. And one of two things is going to happen. And, and it doesn't matter how good it is or how successfully executed that meal is. One of two things is going to happen, and they're both incredible. One is you realize, that, hey, 
I love this. Like, I'm not only going to make this all the time, but I'm going to start learning how to make the second most, you know, prevalent thing in our family's diet and go down the rabbit hole like I did. That's great. Or the other one is equally as, as, as powerful. You now know more about that food that your family eats all the time than you ever would have known in any other way. I don't care how many podcasts you listen to, how many books you read, how many documentaries or cooking shows you watch. You know more about that food than you ever could have in any other way. And you literally, and I'm not overstating this because it, it has transformed my life. You will walk into the grocery store a completely different person. You are now an informed consumer and you are, you literally have this shield up and are immune to the advertising and the marketing around that particular food from that grocery store. The trillions of dollars that go into product placement and packaging and labeling and, and couponing and all of those things that impact our decisions on what we buy, you now walk in completely informed. And what you can do, if you never make that food again, like ever make that food again, you now know enough to support the, you know, select, you know, the best versions, the most nourishing versions of that food that somebody else made. And you are now supporting those people with your hard earned money and you are making an impact on the food system that way. And I know it sounds crazy to tell somebody to get into their kitchen at that level, but that really is where incredible change can happen. So for us, we had to, 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 to finish answering that question. Our goal is to create that sort of education and, and understanding in people. That's why in, in our food lab, uh, the mo one of the most important things that we do is our, our classes. We have in-person classes. We have uh, some of them are several hours. Some of them are several days. We have all sorts of different versions of them. So, and we love people to come here and, and take classes. We have classes online, uh, a lot of downloadable classes from sourdough bread to home cheese making to home butchering. Uh, and we also do uh, other live, uh, live, event, live virtual of, events as well. So our goal is to, is to empower people to do things in their own homes. But there's a lot of people that either take a class and realize that, hey, you know, that's great, but I'm not going to make sourdough bread every week, or that's great, um, I can't do it all the time, and so, or, or I have no interest in cooking whatsoever, which is a very realistic thing for many people. That's why we created the restaurant, uh, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, where we actually make those foods. And if you don't want to, if you don't want to make them yourself, then come here and buy them. We do do some mail order on non-refrigerated things, but uh, most of it you have, you have to come here to get. And listen, if anybody is interested in coming here for a class or for a meal or both, we, um, we're, we're in a beautiful historic town called Chestertown on the eastern shore of Maryland, but we're not that far from sort of city centers. So we have Washington, D.C. is only about an hour. Baltimore is about an hour. Philadelphia is an hour and a half. Um, and so we're, we're in a really cool place and we'd love anybody to come and visit us and for us to help serve them in any way that uh, meets them where they are. I didn't realize that I needed to get to Maryland. So, uh, thank you. <laughs> you for absolutely that, my do. Friend. Uh, we, we will make that happen, but thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your uh, work, the expertise you put out there. And, uh, I've, I've appreciated this visit immensely. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be on with you anytime. Thank you for joining us on Sewing Prosperity. Be sure to follow along across the social media platforms, including YouTube, and be sure to go to sewingprosperity.com.